No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me, on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada. One rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. Almost everyone has a bias, a way of thinking, an opinion. It's pretty much human nature. Journalists, when I went to journalism school, were only supposed to report on facts and not opinion. That has started to change. And in an age where many of us spend lots of time on online social platforms, the bias continues to be confirmed by where we choose to click and view. And modern day algorithms play into that very much so as well. That in turn fills our social feeds with more information that continues to confirm what we already believe to be true. Confirmation bias is not new, but social platforms have certainly made it easier and faster and it's created a broader reach for spreading mis- and disinformation. In the next two episodes, we explore how bias, hate, and extremism has been spreading in Canada, specifically in rural Canada. Joining us in this initial fascinating conversation for this episode are Dr. Barbara Perry, Director at the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism at the Ontario Tech University, and Etienne Quintal, Manager of the Online Hate Research and Education Project with the Toronto Holocaust Education Center. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Kurt Phillips, researcher and board member of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Kurt is also a high school teacher in rural Alberta. First up is Dr. Barbara Perry. What does constitute hate, extremism, bias? So what, 
what qualifies as as that? Yeah, well, I mean, we're talking about a continuum, uh, aren't we? From from bias all the way up to extremism, uh, and and in fact, terrorism. And I think one of the interesting ways to think about it. So, the Anti Defamation League in the U.S. created uh, what they call the Pyramid of Hate, and uh, it literally is a pyramid. And uh, you know, each each level, I guess, builds on the one before uh, till it gets to they they went all the way up to genocide because, of course, they're interested in uh, anti Semitic violence, uh, anti-Jewish violence. So, you know, concerns about the Holocaust. But it starts with, I mean, if you think about bias, right, that starts with our attitudes, our prejudices, our stereotypes, all of those things we carry in our minds, which is, yeah, okay, you know, you carry those in your mind. Um, But what becomes problematic is when, you know, it then becomes manifest in, um, you know, in in various discriminatory uh, and harmful behaviors, like, you know, racial slurs or homophobic jokes or, uh, you know, discriminatory language or exclusive language, uh, those sorts of things. And if that's not checked, then it has the potential to lead to uh, or to escalate to other forms of discrimination through to violence and and extremism. So that's one way to think about it uh, is, you know, these are when we're talking about hate, when we're talking about extremism, those are all grounded in ideas about others, um, you know, negative perceptions uh, and fears about other communities that are not like us. Um, And so I think that's sort of the common core all the way through. And then it it rises up the continuum in terms of the severity, the intensity, the impact of the related behaviors, if you will. I think it's interesting that you said fear, because I think so much of people's bias and and ignorance, I'll use that word, comes from fear of not perhaps knowing someone, not perhaps having had experience with anyone diverse. And I'll use a rural community as an example, that perhaps uh, folks are afraid of losing something. Uh, Is that the case? Yeah, I think it, it very often is. And again, you're absolutely right in rural communities that continue to be pretty homogeneous. So if we look at, you know, where where newcomers locate, for example, it's in the urban areas. It's it's a very slow process for people to then move into rural communities. Uh, so it is, you know, fear of, of the unknown or fear of what they think they know. Uh, because sometimes the only images, the only ideas that we have about others is what we see in the media or, you know, what our families tell us or what our friends tell us. So they're often grounded in stereotypes and are often grounded in, you know, a couple of anecdotal experiences that they had that were, were negative. Uh, and so they expand, extend that to the, to the whole community. Um, one of the interesting patterns that, uh, that we've seen, especially in some of the Western provinces where, you know, there's been a real migration of, of youth out of rural communities to look for jobs, in the urban communities, many of those smaller communities have actually actively recruited immigrants and newcomers into their their towns uh, to fill up those uh, those labor gaps. And then that becomes interpreted as, oh well, the immigrants are coming, and that's made everybody leave, or that you know they've come and taken all of our jobs, uh, and so there's no jobs for us. Rather than understanding that actually the temporal relationship was exactly the opposite, yeah, I think that that there there are you know 
multiple problems in rural communities in terms of familiarity and understanding, uh, you know, different different communities, whether we're talking about racialized communities or even, uh, you know, gender and, and, and sexual minority uh, groups. When it comes to rural communities, why are smaller towns, smaller communities themselves ripe for targeting with extremist ideology? I think a number of reasons. I think there is, you know, you can you can play on that and pray on that uh, that lack of understanding, and you can exacerbate those those stereotypes. You can heighten them. You can heighten the fears. This is what you know, fear mongering. This is what extremism is about: is is fear mongering uh, and catering to people's baser instincts. Uh, and uh, and so we see that there's there's the isolation. Um, that means, you know, there isn't uh, that exposure, not just to different communities, but, you know, there's, you're less likely to have exposure even to conversations about, uh, you know, fear, about xenophobia, about, you know, homophobia, whatever the issue might be, because you don't have a university in the backyard where you have, you know, public lectures, uh, or you don't have community-based organizations that provide uh, those sorts of, you know, informative sessions. Uh, so it, it's it's about exposure. It's also about uh, you know the the ability to have those conversations even uh, at the local level. You don't have the the expertise, organizational expertise or institutional expertise to lead those conversations. Um, so so that certainly plays in. There are other forms of isolation too, in terms of you know you can you can you're much more under the radar. So if you come in to recruit, again, it's about awareness. You don't necessarily recognize it when when you see it. And you don't necessarily have that infrastructure that can that can resist it. When we did our, our first study on right-wing extremism, I remember going to uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, thinking, oh, this is going to be good. They're going to be coming out of the coming out of the woodwork. Um, but that was one community that was able to build resiliency, uh, you know, so that they, they consciously worked uh, across sectors within that town to resist the incursion of white supremacist groups that they knew, you know, were rampant across the province. They saw this recruitment campaign in this particular period of time, and uh, they were able to push back uh, and to resist that because you know, the education sector was involved. The social uh, social services sector was was involved. Law enforcement, community based organizations, civil society. So they put up almost this wall. But that's that's rare because the municipality, the community, needs to recognize the threat uh, before they can prepare themselves. And I think you know that most municipalities just aren't aware what's happening uh, in in this respect. How are groups? permeating both online and in in person yeah well i mean a a lot of it is online and so that knows no geographical boundaries so people are you know where where are they getting in their their information in the absence of valid uh information if you will at the local level you they're going online. They're looking online for answers to, uh, you know, their own individual crises or the crises that they see uh, in their uh, in their country. They're increasingly visible and vocal. Uh, these groups. They're going off. Of, they're being forced off of some of the mainstream platforms, of course, Facebook, that sort of thing. Doesn't mean the conversations aren't still there. They are readily accessible on other platforms, you know, Discord and the Chans, not no longer 4chan, but 8chan still, um, those sorts of 
alternative platforms that are still quite popular. Uh, so the online space uh, is, you know, they'll exploit anyone uh, who who shares their ideas or their fears. In the in the offline space in rural communities, you know, I mean, some of these groups have very long roots in rural communities, and and I would say in three particular parts of the country. Uh, we've seen this in Quebec, we've seen this in Western Ontario, and we've seen this uh, in rural Alberta. Uh, many of them, it's not that they're coming in and recruiting in rural areas, but they actually have their foundations uh, in in rural areas. Uh, and it's almost a reaction against the urban flaws uh, that, you know, the it's the cities that are multicultural. It's the cities that are the problem. And this is, you know, let's just keep all those people there. Uh, let's, let's rally together and keep them out of, out of our, uh, our small town. We don't want them here. Local groups that, uh, that grow up in that way. It does happen the other way uh, as well, the other direction that there are attempts to recruit. Um, again, coming back to what I said earlier, there's a recognition or perception at least that they are ripe for the picking, right? That, uh, you know, again, especially those smaller communities that are undergoing some demographic change, that they're uneasy, they're uncomfortable. Or if there are economic crises, you know, you lose the last piece of industry. So you were reliant on, you know, the cement plant and the cement plant moved or closed down. Um, you know, you can play on those economic anxieties. Who's to blame? You know, what, it's the immigrants or it's the, it's the Jews. It's never the corporation. Do many people realize that they are being manipulated? I Like, I think that folks are fooled. Uh, a lot of times into believing just what you said in, in that, you know, the blame is being placed on someone else. There's a strong case. There are memes everywhere. The things are popping up on their social media feeds. It's confirming, you know, everything that people are telling them and talking about in the coffee shop in town. And, and so how, how can they refute that? Like, how can they avoid being manipulated? Yeah, that, that is a challenge because especially online, right, once they begin to follow a particular thread, that's the way the algorithms work, right? They continue to take them into darker and darker spaces. Confirmation bias, right? And this these are the sorts of things that people continue to look for. Uh, they don't look for disconfirming. They don't look for the alternative evidence. Uh, you know, they look for more of the same. Again, in the absence of civic discourse and dialogue that allows for the airing of, of different views and different perceptions, uh, you know, it's very hard to sort of talk them down and talk them away from that. I, I mean, I always often focus on sort of what I call the mushy middle, right? Extremes are very difficult to, to bring to the table. Um, it, it's those folks who, you know, aren't sure, maybe even those who are apathetic, uh, you know, at least they haven't taken a firm, a firm stand uh, on, on the other extremes. You know, how can we uh, engage them in a conversation and then you know they become part of that outreach if you will and that dialogue uh with with others who have gone gone a little further further afield virtually every institution has some some place uh in this in this conversation and i think right now especially when we're talking about rural communities i think that we have to focus on the local resources that are there you know, what civil society organizations are there uh, that can host these sorts of conversations, that can provide, you know, alternative um, messaging, that can fill in some of those gaps, and maybe even proactively, right, as, as Lethbridge did, uh, you know, before 
you know, folks come to town to try to recruit or before it foments into something, you know, a local movement with, with local roots uh, is to uh, is to provide a space for conversations about those fears, those anxieties. I keep thinking back to the, you know, the first Trump election. And, you know, I often said at the time that it wasn't really, it wasn't just that he won. It was that Clinton lost uh, because mm-hmm. she hadn't addressed the real valid concerns of the people who turned out to be his base that, you know, that the Democrats had not effectively addressed the loss of industry. I mean, he lied about what he was going to do, but at least, you know, he had something to say about it. Uh, And I think that, you know, this is, we maybe learned from that lesson that, you know, we have to uh, acknowledge and, and engage with exactly those kinds of grievances that make people vulnerable uh, to to this kind of messaging. I think that trust has eroded also. I think that the big media companies and and, and a lot of the, the right-wing folks say mainstream media, and they're upset, and, and rightly so, that they've pulled up stakes in, in smaller communities. So mm. Places that used to have a community newspaper or, you know, one reporter from CTV or, you know, somebody that's actually going to cover their city council, for instance, mm-hmm. that's actually going to question things, that's actually going to, you know, sit there through the budget process. That's missing. And and rural folks are pissed off about it, <laughs> that there's no one paying attention. And that also makes for a perfect storm for folks to come in and say, well, where we'll pay attention to you. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll make sure that you're heard. And I think you're seeing that on a national scale, even Alberta's new premier is saying that she wants to be the voice of rural Alberta. Mm, yeah. And somebody yeah. needs to be the voice of rural people because they feel ignored and yeah. and their issues are ignored. Yeah. And so if there is something to be done, it's to pay attention to rural people and not, <laughs> I mean, extreme people are paying attention yeah. to the rural folks. Yeah. The mainstream media is telling me lies. And how do they know that's not true? It's no wonder we're going backwards because things are being blamed on urban folks, making decisions for rural folks. It's problematic in so many ways. Next, I speak with Etienne Quintal, manager of the Online Hate Research and Education Project with the Toronto Holocaust Education Centre. First of all, what is it that you do? I mean, what is it that you are researching? And um, yeah, let's start with that. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Um, So I'm the manager of the Online Hate Research and Education Project, um, which is uh, done through the um, Toronto uh, Holocaust Education Centre, soon to be the Toronto Holocaust Museum. Um, More details on that in the spring. Um, But essentially what we we do is we look um, at uh, hate online, specifically looking at memes uh, posted on, on the main platforms um, in order to make sense of really um, who is being targeted, how are they being targeted, what are the big stories that are told, um, not just for you know how that's affecting the specific community, but also how are these stories used then to recruit, to radicalize um, new people within these movements. Um, 
so we've been we've been running this project for a year now. Um, and, and I, you know, some, as someone who's been doing this research for, for already a fairly long time, I've learned quite a bit in terms of really the, the, the scope of these stories, but also how um, the stories that are being told today um, that we're hearing about, that we're seeing in the news, um, the stories that we're sometimes hearing even politicians talk about, those actually don't come from, they're not new, right? Um, they're rarely things that are completely invented from, you know, discourse from the last few years. They're usually built on sometimes decades, sometimes century-old tropes um, that have been vehiculated in a, in a variety of different manners. So what we look at is how these old stories tend to be adapted into new contexts, usually focusing on things like pop culture um, and focusing on current events as well. So what have you found in your research in the last year when it comes to rural Canadians and rural online groups and, and, and all of that stuff? Um, well, what's, what's really been interesting, that's, that's really a trajectory that we've, we've seen in our field in recent years, is that we used to talk specifically about groups and about local uh, mobilizations um, in the era of the internet, it's, it's a little bit different, uh, and we tend to look more at, um, at movements, at ideologies, and at networks, because ultimately those networks tend to be um, more than one standing than specific groups. For example, groups, um, you know, they come, they go, uh, oftentimes they break up because of, you know, infighting, because of, in some cases, infiltration by, uh, by activists who uh, oppose hate. Uh, or sometimes just because there's not any interest to keep speaking about the issues that they're, you know, building or their group around on that given day. But what happens is when these groups um, get together, when they participate in large protests, or um, when they share the same online spaces, you know, in Facebook groups, whether that's, um, you know, following the same streamers online, these people talk, right? They, they, they'll have their group chats, um, they'll have their social media pages, and, and uh you know, if, if for example, uh, you know, the, the, the topic of the day at the time, people lose interest, for example, we, we, you know, quite a bit between 2016 to 2017, a lot of what we talked about or heard talk about um, was a lot of opposition to asylum seekers. Now that's kind of died down in recent years, we've seen a lot of talk about COVID. Um, and what's interesting is that the, it's essentially the same people that are playing a prominent role in, in promoting either at the time anti-refugee uh, tropes or today um, anti-COVID or uh, sorry, COVID conspiracy theories. What's interesting is, yeah, it's the same people that are doing this in both instances, but they've radically changed their message uh, in order to tailor themselves to a new audience. Um, and what we're seeing is that really this having an effect uh, that, that can be very broad. So obviously on the national level, we've seen um, with the Freedom Convoy, obviously with a lot of people going down to Ottawa, but we've seen a lot of local demonstrations. We saw people like cheering on the convoy as it passed through their town. Um, and that's really because the, the internet has created a new playing field um, where you're no longer maybe one person in your town who's who's you know expressing these beliefs. You can much more easily find other people who agree with you. You can network with them. You can meet them. You can organize meetups, that kind of stuff. Um, so we've really seen that that kind of playing field changed a lot in the most in in recent years. So you said that it's often the same players. It's often the same groups. Who are those groups? Who are the groups that are you know, spreading memes and spreading misinformation 
and influencing people in such a strong way? Um, I mean, more often than not, it's, 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 it, I mean, it's, it's as much your, your racist uncle at the dinner table as it is, um, you know, people who have a good microphone um, and a good webcam who can stream and have kind of that showmanship, right? And what we've seen, um, especially with groups like, uh, or with networks rather, like the Diagonal Network, which uh, you might have heard of in recent years, um, that was one of the networks that was most visible and most active during the convoy protests. Um, notably, also uh, members of the group uh, or of the network rather were arrested uh, in the context of the Coots uh, border blockade in Alberta um, on conspiracy to murder law enforcement officer charges. Um, and you know, uh, it was identified uh, later on that one of the people who was arrested was once described as the head of security for that network, and that the uh, armament and that the armor that they um, that were seized during uh, the arrests uh, bore the insignias of, of that group. Um, and what's interesting about Diagon, what's interesting, and what it reveals essentially about um, what what um, hate promotion looks like in Canada is that it's really centered around influencers and, and, and really these people who are able to build an audience for, um, for you know, the hate that they promote in a way that uh, almost becomes like a form of entertainment, right? And we've seen it in the United States with people like Alex Jones, people like Nicholas J. Fuentes. Um, these are these are people who have a capacity to, to, to reach, you know, in the past they could have reached maybe people in their town, but now they have the capacity to reach people across, uh, across the country um, and, and, uh, yeah, that, that, that really, that really transforms, uh, the, the, the playing field and allows them to reach corners of the country that they wouldn't have been able to reach otherwise, or that maybe, that maybe were, uh, in tune to some of their ideas, but not necessarily able to, um, to network effectively before. How does the ideology, uh, infiltrate, penetrate? I, I say this because, um, you know, there's some e extreme or borderline extreme uh, political groups that have cropped up here in Ontario where they're, you know, outside of the fringe. Well, I say fringe and, you know, that's, that's a trigger word for some of them. But I've sat in on some of their, you know, gatherings just so I can hear what's being said and they're, they, they're quoting all of you, you should watch this video and you should, you know, listen to this conspiracy theorist and, and they will fight tooth and nail, uh, and, and confirm their bias over and over and over again, because they don't trust the media anymore. How has that happened? Um, so there's really two things that I think are worth highlighting in what you said. First of all, and, and uh, it's really interesting that you use the word fringe and then you kind of backtracked. Um, and and it's, it's important because I think ultimately um, it, it, it wouldn't be unfair to say that I think the average person, uh, no matter how, how nice they might be or how um, progressive they might view themselves, tend to have either blind sides or opinions that um, don't necessarily match the, re the rest of, uh, of their beliefs, right? Um, we see things like, like transphobia, specifically uh, the hatred of trans people, um, being really normalized in a lot of spaces where you know, people are, are historically progressive, right? In the feminist movement, we've seen, for example, people peddle transphobia within uh, existing feminist networks. 
Um, and so, so I think a lot of these, these networks, these influencers, what they do is they, they try to figure out issues that are, that can act as wedges for people. Um, and in recent years, that's been, that's been COVID, um, because a lot of people, um, care about that issue and, and maybe they don't subscribe to, um, you know, the Holocaust denialism that is being peddled in some of these spaces or the forms of hatred that are being peddled, but they agree with at least that part of the message. So they're listening, um, for the COVID parts. And then in, you know, and some of these streams can last like three, four hours. So you're sitting there, you're listening. And in conjunction to uh, obviously the COVID conspiracism, you're also hearing snippets of, you know, this group is this or this group is that. And, and at some point you end up internalizing these messages. So it's about kind of getting people to sit down and listen and then exposing them to the material. Um, the other thing that I think is, is worth highlighting as well, specifically in the context of COVID, is that conspiracy theories... Um, really develop in the person as a response to uh, anxious pressures um, and stressors, right? So during COVID-19, uh, you know, we were all forced in, in the same way to go back, you know, to stay home, to isolate, to, to, to hold our ground and, and wait for what's next, right? And that can be a very uh, anxiety-inducing experience because, you, you, you know, we were all faced with the, essentially the idea that not only did we have no control over our situation, but that really it was a collective kind of, um, of situation where um, it's, not, it's not about whether you have the disease, it's about whether other people have the disease and can give it to you and whether you can spread it. Um, so this made a lot of people realize that we don't actually have a lot of agency over our situation in a lot of cases. Um, and that's where conspiracy th theories tend to develop is in, in, in that anxiety because what conspiracy theories do is they give you the illusion sometimes that you have the ability to change things and um, COVID-19 is not like a natural pandemic that's developed. In it was like a perfect storm, the Freedom Convoy, for rural Canada because, because of a lot of things. Um, Barbara, you, you and I talked about, I, I brought up, there's a lack of uh, media coverage in rural communities. Uh, the big media companies have picked up stakes. Uh, rural folks feel ignored uh, by politicians and by the media. Uh, rural people are also, and, and I'm generalizing, like this is a sweeping generalization. It's not everyone. But there is uh, a growing concern, I would say, that rural folks are losing something and losing their land, losing their hold on, on white supremacy, whole, losing a lot of things. And, and this has resulted in, you know, Facebook pages, of little tiny communities. We, we In Ontario, there's a municipal election. There's one in Manitoba. They just had one in BC. And, you know, there's, there's lots of fighting, lots of vitriol and lots of anger. And, and what are your thoughts on, on rural Canada and how ripe it has been for the picking? You mentioned loss, and I think that that's an important thing. It's loss of tradition, loss of comfort, loss of status uh, in many respects, but but also loss of some very 
um, you know, sort of structural and, 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 and pragmatic things like loss of jobs and loss of industry as well, which can throw a community into crisis. Um, you know, so many smaller communities, small town, you know, small cities, large towns um, are often reliant on one industry. Uh, and if they lose that industry, then, you know, the, the, the foundations uh, of the community begin to crumble. Or sometimes there's a new industry that uh, that comes to the fore. I think I was I was describing to you uh, before we were so rudely interrupted that um, in fact you know my hometown has become a real tourist mecca and that has has garnered discomfort and anxiety that isn't met with uh, with approval or elation by all parts of the community because uh, sometimes because of who those tourists are again not like us uh you know very it changes the dynamics and and the demographics if you will seasonally uh and and that's uncomfortable for a lot of people so yeah there are a lot of uh, of concerns there's fear there's anger and these folks you know the the far right preys on emotion in particular. They don't prey on logic. They prey on emotion and really exploit that. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think Dr. Perry is, is right on the money. Um, I do think as, as well, there's there's a cultural aspect to it and you kind of alluded to it in, um, in the sense that uh, there is that perception sometimes that, uh, that small towns are being left out. Um, and, and, and that's true on an economic level in some ways, it's true on a political level in some ways, but on a cultural level, I do think it's worth highlighting as well. Um, I'm, I'm from a, a relatively small town myself, and I'm uh, obviously from Quebec, um, and, and sometimes, like, you know, you'll, you'll have these conversations, you'll tell someone, like, oh, I'm from so-and-so town, um, or I'm from so-and-so province, and you automatically you get that reaction, like, almost like an ish. Uh, like that's a red flag, and and culturally that's something that holds a lot of power, and, and that feeling that you're being left out of the broader conversation of the broader country, that's also something that uh, hate groups spray on. And I think what's unfortunate about some of these reactions sometimes is that that can make or that can contribute to isolating progressive elements within those small towns that are also fighting back against hate. And you know I think something that's worth highlighting in that context is just how close. Um, the writing of Perry Muskoka, for example, came to elected a Green Party member in, in a part of the country or a part of the province that we wouldn't necessarily expect to, to have kind of that progressive bent. Um, and I think that's, that speaks, first of all, to the level of organization there, but I think that also speaks to the existence of, of in the same way that there's uh, you know, far-right mobilization in those small towns, there's also progressive you know, good folks who... Um, who want to make their communities better because, you know, it's, it's to the benefit of everyone that um, their own communities be inclusive and, and be um, positive spaces. Um, so I think there's also an aspect, you know, to which we, we need to empower elements within small towns um, and, and include them within the broader progressive movement as well, and the broader movement to fight hate. I just want to add one more point about, you know, we're talking about, you know, lack of, lack of. Um, one of the other, well, maybe sort of two pieces here, when we're talking about, about hate crime or, you know, where to turn, who to turn to, um, there's also a problem with respect to law enforcement in, in small communities. 
A, I mean, they might be sympathetic, uh, but B, I mean, they're just under-resourced in, in small communities. There's very fast turnover, very high turnover uh, amongst law enforcement in small communities. They come in, they get their couple of years experience, and they move on to, uh, you know, a more prestigious uh, community. Um, so they don't get to know the community in a way that they can serve them effectively. Um, there often aren't culturally uh, specific supports uh, that are available for, uh, for victims. Um, there are wide distances depending on where we're where we're talking about, right? So that the response to uh, to criminal incidents, including hate hate crime, may well lag. So um, there are also, and these are enabling factors as well that uh, allow hate crime to go under the radar um, because it's not uh, it's it, law enforcement are unable sometimes unwilling, uh, but unable to uh, to respond effectively. They don't have the capacity. They don't have the training. They don't have, you know, a hate crime officer or a hate crime unit. They, they can't afford that resource. Everyone is uh, a generalist rather than a, a specialist uh, in that sense. So um, I, I think there are challenges there as well. I'm going to ask you both this question because I think that we talked about social media and we talked about the Facebook pages in particular, people go online and they see memes and they believe them. And so I'm going to use the example. There's a couple of them. So recently there was something about litter boxes uh, in schools and then there was something, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and then there was something like uh, in Ontario where there's, you know, a meme that says, that uh, right-wing uh, organizations are planting folks to run in, as school board trustees in municipal elections. So how do people determine what is true and what is not? The response to you know, being fact-checked is usually negative, right? Like in the context of the, of the litter box um, or, or, you know, in the context of, you know, the harassment of, of journalists, like specifically people like Rachel Gilmore, who do amazing work um, covering the far right. One of the things that, that uh, Rachel Gilmore has been dealing with is people creating these memes where they'll fabricate, like completely fabricate a headline and then ascribe it to her um, and share it within their communities. And that has a double effect of obviously people will take it at face value or people you know, will, will, will share it because they think it's a joke and then more people will take it at face value. And one of the things that uh, she's talked about doing is that she's reached out to a few of the people who um, share these memes and she'll tell them like, this isn't real, why would you share it? And, and the people will respond, um, well, this might as well be real because you know everything is going in that direction. So why wouldn't this be real? Um, and, and, and I think there's uh, beyond just fact-checking specific like, items, I think it's important to have a broader conversation about um, almost bringing people back to to a certain reality um, because because there is this idea um, that society is going in this direction that this is unavoidable and and that that is especially when it comes to the specific example that you raised that that's you know what uh, you know the, the the LGBTQ agenda is leading to um, and I, I think a big part of that is. Um, in, in, in some of those cases, it's like, to, to use the exception, go touch grass, but also like literally, like, have you met trans people? Have you met like queer people? Um, and I think it's, it's much harder to make up these theories and, and to continue to validate that view of, you know, this is the direction that the world is going in when you realize that, 
you know, like queer people are just people like you and I. They they like they they're working to make their bills, to make their payments, to keep their house, to keep their apartment, um, to keep their job. Like they're just at the end of the day normal people, and I think, and and I don't know that I have a specific answer as to how that's that's doable. Um, but I, but I think that's something that needs to be done is to um, expose you know people who tend to have these conspiratorial beliefs or are aiming towards that to uh, you know to expose them to what the real reality is, um, especially in the context of again, this is you know queer people exist in your community like they're not just in big cities they're not coming from the big cities they're born there they're born they're your neighbor they're your, you know your relatives in many cases. Um, and I find when it becomes, you know, more of a personal thing, uh, people tend to like start making these exceptions to their worldview. And when they make those exceptions to the worldview, that's usually what kind of contributes to bringing them back into almost the fold of reality. To me, the most troubling part is the threat of violence in smaller communities that happens uh, sometimes in person, a lot of it online. Um, what are you seeing in your research as you know, as we're going forward politically and, and online, is the hate going to dissipate? Can it dissipate? Or, or what, what are you saying? I wish I could say yes. I'm usually an optimist, but in this space, I'm afraid I'm a bit of a pessimist. Um, I mean, we've seen such dramatic increases over the past few years. Since 2019 alone, we've seen a 72% increase uh, in uh, reported hate crimes. And that's the tip of the iceberg, right? What's reported to uh, to law enforcement. Um, so we are seeing an uptick because it, you know, we're, we're, we've developed, we have established, um, you know, this climate for hate. Hate has become normalized because of political narratives, because of media narratives, because of the social media uh, narratives and the memes that you were referring to earlier. So there are so many, uh, so many factors, so many layers uh, contributing to this 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 growth and this uh, enabling of hate that it's you know it's like the genie is out of the bottle. Uh, you add to that right the the growth of uh, of you know far right groups and and individuals uh, you know not necessarily formally affiliated, but floating around uh, in that milieu. And uh, it's, it's a challenge. And, and those, um, you know, those political narratives are not going away. In fact, you know, they are doubling down, even in the Canadian context, right, with two, with two party leaders uh, who are, you know, at the very, at the very least, pandering to, uh, you know, far right, uh, far right narratives as well, and playing into those, and and uh, you know, in, encouraging them tacitly or otherwise. Uh, so uh, you know, until we come to the point where um, you know those political narratives are challenged effectively, we have very little hope uh, of challenging similar narratives on the ground or or in the ether. It's particularly distressing to do this work as someone who works. Um, you know, for a Holocaust education center, um, because I, I think on a daily basis, I'm exposed to um, the testimonies and the memories of, of the people who have lived through um, what, in, in, in some cases, people are building towards, right? And it's important, I think, in that context to highlight the need for education. Um, it's important that people understand um, that things like the Holocaust didn't happen, you know, in one day, you know, it wasn't just Hitler taking power and then the next day it's the Holocaust. It's what came before and how these people mobilized and how the ideas that they were, you know, talking about the, you know, the, the, the racism, the hate, um, how these ideas were normalized, the tactics that went behind that. 
so obviously there's there's a, a big education gap that we need to reach. Um, a part of it obviously is dispensing with the idea of, of Canadian exceptionalism, this idea that we're um, somehow immune um, and, and pushing that conversation further to not simply we're not immune to this, but this is happening here and, and we need to do something about it. And lastly, I think a big part of it is uh, in recent years, people who uh, subscribe to hateful beliefs, people who are racist, people who are homophobic, transphobic, they don't feel scared to be, to, you know, to express those beliefs anymore. They're doing it online, they're doing it in person. And in a lot of cases, uh, you know, they're not getting uh, pushback. Or in, in some cases, for example, like we, we've talked a little bit about local community groups on, on platforms like Facebook. It's not rare that one person will entirely take over that group and make it all about hate because no one wants to be in that space with them. And obviously there's so much risk that comes with responding to these things. But it's important to know that the one thing that these people fear is pushback. And, and the one thing that these people fear is being met with a greater number of people who say, no, actually, we, won't, we don't want your, your politics in our town. We don't want your hate here. We don't want it in our community groups online. Um, so again, it's important to show up. It's important to be clear in our, in our beliefs. And it's important to make sure that we're educated on how hate is being peddled today. That's it for this episode. Be sure to tune in for part two of bias, hate, and extremism in rural Canada when I speak with Kurt Phillips, who started doing anonymous online research into hate groups in Canada, but he was doxxed in recent years, losing his anonymity. He's a board member of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network and also a high school teacher in rural Alberta. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Munsee Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 